0: Hello and welcome to the Amplify podcast, Amplius podcast, Amplipod, Amplipod. Uh, we're still working on a name here, as you can tell. Uh, But again, the goal of this podcast is to have a brief conversation. Uh, It could include members of Amplius and outsiders or just members of Amplius as today's does. And we want to amplify a concept, an idea, or a person. For today, we're going to amplify the topic of behavioral finance, which uh, you're probably hearing out there a lot right now, especially given the lousy start to the year for the, uh, for the capital markets, both stock and bonds. Uh, just before we dive in, our, uh, our favorite topic, which is disclosure. Uh, nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment tax or legal advice. You need to have those conversations one-on-one with your investment, tax, and legal advisors. Without any uh, further ado, let's kick it off.
1: All right. Good to be here. I, By way of introducing ourselves to the vast universe of, uh, of listeners, this is Patrick Swift. Uh, Matt Liebman was uh, our, our uh, esteemed kickoff host, and we also have Aaron Marks. I'll let Aaron introduce himself.
2: Hello, everybody. Thanks for uh, tuning in. So where do we want to begin on uh, behavioral finance?
0: Well, let's start here. And uh, Pat, if you want to kick us off here, why don't we actually talk about what it is? What's behavioral finance? Uh, And and then we can go into uh, uh, some more details about it and and how we think about it at Embleys.
1: Yeah. Um, And I think it it gets used broadly, right? And it may mean different things to people. In fact, I had a conversation with a client semi-recently where I was trying to amplify the point of behavioral finance to, to this person. Uh, and I used the word emotional and they didn't take very kindly to that. They said, I'm not being emotional. I was like, Oh, well, I, poor choice of words on my part behaviorally. Um, but yeah, (laughs) what, what is it? Um, I think it's just the way that we react, uh, to whether it's capital markets and, and, uh, this sort of human inputs to, uh, uh, to what's going on in the investment landscape um, is the part that you can't quantify. And I, I think that broadly applies um, to the topic of behavioral finance. What do you guys, what do you guys define? See,
2: even beyond finance, it's just how uh, we as humans react to certain things, good news, bad news, jealousy. It's the same here, just translated into our world. When markets are good, markets are bad, you feel a certain way and you want to act with emotion that word you just mentioned, Patrick, generally not the right move. So behavioral finance, finance world, how you as a person react and want to implement and implement and make changes, um, not always the right thing to do.
0: Yeah. And I think it's it's interesting because there is, you know, it it crosses over into um, psychology, which I think as a society, and this is, I believe this is Mental Health Awareness Month. Is that, is that correct? correct. Um, as a society, we're getting better uh, in that department, in my opinion, but there's still sig- a stigma uh, associated with psychological issues. And, and I think when I mean, it comes to our side of finance, I think we just sort of need to take it away from the, uh, the stigma and, and recognize that, good, bad, or otherwise, we all have psychology on every topic in every life, like Aaron, like Aaron was saying. Uh, and, and, you know, and finances and investments are no, are no different. And there are a lot of, um, a lot of really notable uh, investment titans, people that have been in the industry for decades and decades and made billions and billions of dollars who have said that your, uh, your behavior uh, will ultimately drive your returns way more than your investment research, you know, your asset allocation, all of these uh, important things that we talk about. But it's really uh, human behavior that drives the bus the most.
1: Yeah, that's a uh, full agreement on, on, on all of that. And even to maybe crystallize what I often find to be maybe the root cause of, of bad financial decisions, whether it's investment specific or just poor habits, um, a lot of times it comes down to ego, which is a more specific um, behavior <laughs> uh, or characteristic, unfortunately, in some cases. Um and that, whether you know, to use maybe specific examples, if your investment portfolio hasn't returned to um, your, I, I, I guess, specifications or, or what you thought it should, you can have an ego about about why that is. I think we as advisors often see uh, people comparing themselves not only to benchmarks but but each other, right? The, the old water cooler um, type of conversations that are pervasive in all of our lives, right? We're, we're social beings and we talk to each other and we compare and we compete. And I think that's really a hard hurdle for people to get over because of, because of ego. Um, And I, we probably sound like broken records and cliche financial advisors. When we tell people that the only benchmark that should matter is what you're trying to achieve with your money. Um, it, It just doesn't, it just, for a lot of folks that, that doesn't, that doesn't, Sit well.
2: And we talk about a lot of times, clients people that aren't clients judge against the S and P 500. Well, what does the performance of 500 companies have to do with you and your portfolios and your goals and your family? It's okay, we have to benchmark to something, but why that Um, has no bearing on, on what you're trying to do with your life? I want to retire, live my life, travel, eat, not worry let's focus on that and how we get you there. And whether it's getting you a 1% per year return or a 20%, uh, it doesn't matter what those 500 companies are doing right now. We just need to accomplish your goals. But you were exactly right, Patrick. I think people get hung up on the, what their friends are doing, what they hear on the news.
1: And, and I'll, oh, sorry, go ahead, Matt.
2: No, I was gonna say just building on that is, and this is
0: behavior. You hear about the S&P 500 a lot um, during up markets that it magically disappears from a lot of conversations once the market turns south and it's like, I'm losing money and it's like, I, I get it, you know, and, and I don't mean to belittle losing money, but but I do think, and this is where I think goals-based benchmarking matters. Uh, I'm all for benchmarking. We should be measuring ourselves. We, uh, we, we, we put out quarterly reports all the time and internally and externally measure ourselves. Uh, that said, you can't have a moving target as a benchmark. Um, uh, you know, uh, or, or it ceases to be useful in my opinion, which is why, uh, you should have, you know, your overall financial plan should be your benchmark. And, and like Patrick said, a lot of this stuff is, um, is broken record stuff, but that's because that's sort of the nature I think of sound financial management. It's doing really simple things. Um, excuse me, really sort of, uh, uh, simple things that aren't easy, you know, uh, and, uh, and, and maybe, you know, and, and just following a simple path is, is not easy and that's behavioral finance, right? Cause we're humans, we're not robots.
1: Right. Yeah. I, I, you hit the nail on the head. It's, and it's a line I think we probably all use is whatever your investment approach is. Um, obviously there's much has been made in the last 10, 15 years around direct indexing and, and using index funds and not trying to beat the market. We're huge believers of that. And, uh, it is a very very simple investment strategy to to digest but it's not easy right we have these studies from Dalbar that come out we have studies from various um, industry publications and, and behavioral financial institutions like I think Boston College does a whole lot of work in that space and it's oftentimes <clears throat> you look at the results of people who you know apparently follow a passive index strategy and um, and they still can't even hit their S and P five hundred return. And why is that? It's it's the behavioral stuff because it's just not easy. It's not easy to continue believing the same things that you did, you know, four months ago when the when the S and P five hundred yeah. was at all time highs.
2: So, so one of the most you know legendary mutual funds out there was the Magellan Fund, right? And, the, and it wasn't there this study that I don't know what the average annual return over the kind of the the, uh, the glory years of the Magellan Fund were, but let's just say it was. Ten percent per year, and someone did a study, probably at the Magellan Fund, and said, "Okay, what did our investors actually return over that time?" And again, I don't remember the exact exact numbers, but let's just say it was six percent per year. Well, how did the investor inside the Magellan Fund return six percent while the fund returned ten? It's Because they acted with emotion, they were in at the wrong times and out at the wrong times. If you just stayed in and closed your eyes and did nothing, ten percent. You, you meddle, you tweak, you act. That's when, hey, you can hit a home run and double the market, or you can crap out and return half. Why not just stay in? If you believe so, what you were saying is correct. It is hard to stay with one strategy. So find the strategy, Matt, you've always said this, that you can stay with most easily. So whether it's I'm a private equity believer or I'm an indexing believer, or I'm a stock picker, they all work. But which one can you stick with for the next 30 years and not bail on? I think that's yeah. behavioral finance.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. Well, I shouldn't say they all work, but most of them will work. That's right. <laughs> I, can, I can design something that won't work, but uh, you know, but uh, uh, no, no, you're right. And and I think um, it, there is there is a line uh, out there, and I forget who originally said it, but it's um, don't worry about um, outperforming or underperforming a benchmark. Uh, try just try not to underperform your own portfolio. Um, which is, you know, effectively what you were referring to there with the Magellan example. And there have been all kinds of examples. I mean, um, there are some hedge fund managers that made billions, went on to own professional sports franchises, all that kind of stuff. But if you actually looked at the dollars in their fund, they lost money on the aggregate over time. But what happened was they made spectacular returns at some point. And good enough to make them wonderfully wealthy, and their and their investors wealthy. I'm not I'm not belittling that, but then they became super popular. All this money came flowing in, and then they had a couple of lousy of years, which happens. And net net on, on a dollar basis, they wound up losing people money. So I you know I I think all of that is behavioral finance, right?
1: And why yeah you know, we're talking about why all this stuff is important. We are, you typically work with individuals like ourselves who are trying to accomplish personal financial goals. And what Matt just mentioned is uh, something we see all the time. It's again, it's it's easy logic to understand or simple logic to understand, but not easy to follow where, and we saw the last two years with pandemic specific companies really benefiting from what was going on, where people often like to chase that momentum. And you just mentioned it, Matt, right? Funded really, really well. And now everybody wants to get into it. Zoom went up a 1,000 million percent. Now everybody wants to buy it. They don't want to think about you know the downside. And we see that all the time. So why is that important? Well, if you're trying to do those things and you get lousy returns, we focus on the things you can control as advisors when we we're doing financial planning. And there's so many factors that go into creating a, a financial plan or, or creating you know, a roadmap for success. And there are only so many things you can control. And if you can't control the market, then you, you're, you're better off at least using some sense of history um, to be able to predict well. And when you're chasing momentum or you're chasing downsides or you're chasing uh, spectacular performance, it's next to impossible, right? To, to really have a successful plan. Cause you're, you're adding more variability to the, one of the biggest components that you already can't control. Um, and that's why it's so important, right? It's just because you, you, you're you going to derail yourself. Or you can.
0: Yeah, uh, no, I, I, I think that's right. And I think, look, I, I'm also like, I'm not trying to duck the um, benchmark indices. We still provide reports that show people, you know, uh, uh, compared to various indexes, it, it's sort of, it's pre-programmed in, a, in our industry. And we'll keep showing them. Uh, you know, we're not hiding anything, but it's just ultimately, you um, it's not what gets the job done. Um, you, you know, you uh, you can't go to the store and buy things. And if you have no money in your pocket, credit card, cash, or otherwise, or Apple Pay or whatever, if you have no money, you can't buy anything. And you can't say, well, you know, but my portfolio outperformed last year. Like that, that doesn't matter. You know, in the grand scheme, and maybe that's sort of a, a, a crass or crude example, but but it's sort of reality. You know, we're we're all uh, uh, we're all humans, and we need to reach human goals here. So. Um, Maybe we can shift a little bit to talk about um, how we use it here uh, at Amplius. Like, what, what, and maybe uh, we each have an example or two. Obviously, we won't use real names, but, uh, uh, you know, j- just sort of ha- how we implement this.
1: Well, I don't know if I have a perfect implementation example, but I did have a conversation without naming names yesterday with a client who I hadn't talked to in a few months. This person is recently semi retired and had been notoriously a bit more nervous about markets and and the movement of their portfolio, which is fine. It's exactly what we're talking about today. Um, But this person is now, again, like I said, semi-retired and living a really fun life. They're traveling and they're doing a lot of things that they were not able to do before because we've planned well for those events in their lives now. And this person told me on the phone, you know, the market conversation came up and he said, you know, I haven't watched the news, I don't think, in four or five months. And I had someone mention to me something about the stock market. And then that's when I thought we should talk again. And I, I've never been happier. And I was like, it's funny you should say. <laughs> and I referenced some studies around. But it's true. I mean, that's just a perfect example of, yeah, if you're able to tune out the noise, is, all that stuff on the news, is, sure, is it important to be informed? But does it help you stick to your goals? Does it help you accomplish the things in your own life? No, it just introduces a lot of stress, and I just thought it was a good example of someone kind of living and walking or sort of uh, walking that talk that we always use. We're not telling people to not watch the news or log into their account, but, you know, he hasn't been nervous for the longest period of our, our tenure working together, and it's because he's just kind of ignored the, the, the BS, for lack of a better term. I just thought that was a... Timely conversation.
2: (laughs) It goes a long way. We all know the people on both sides of that coin. The one that look every day, every minute, every hour. And the ones that you talk to, they're like, hey, look, I just block it out. I know it'll come back. Me looking now is not going to lead to any better outcome. And it'll probably lead to a poor outcome because I'll be stressed or make an overreaction or push to make a change. Um, So I think that is, you know, in today's day and age, it's hard to avoid. Things just pop up on your phone. S and P up a thousand points, down a thousand points, what have you. So again, hard to avoid. But hey, you know, don't flip on CNBC in the morning first thing. Don't check your account throughout the day. Again, easier said than done. Which is why we believe, self-servingly, you should have a financial advisor. You, if as long as you know somebody's looking after you and thinking about you when you're not thinking about yourself and your portfolio then maybe it's easier to separate. But if it's on you and you're the only one that controls the portfolio, the decisions, maybe you want to look a bit more, but you still shouldn't. But Hey, if you can psychologically think I, maybe I don't need to look because I have a team that is, that's a critical barrier to put between you and decision-making.
0: Fully agree. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll give you just a, a, a couple examples based on that. And, you know, we're not immune to having uh, behavioral uh, psychology as well when it comes to this. So when we came up, um, you know, getting trained at a big firm, every time there was a market panic, you know, sell off for some reason, it's always something, you know, the world's, the world's always moving. Um, there was this rush from the firm on down. I'm not saying they're wrong, but we were trained this way that, that's the time you got to reach out. You got to bombard people with calls, know that you're there, you're looking out for them, all these things. So the other day, you know, we've had these rough markets to start the year. I was uh, on the phone. Uh, we love all of our clients, but, but this one particularly, she's awesome. Uh, and uh, I had emailed her and set up a Zoom call. She lives in another state and so on to go over stuff. And I'm thinking, all right, I, markets are nuts. I got to talk to her. I got to, you know, just because of the psychology, how we were all trained. She gets on the Zoom, and I guess we had never scheduled a Zoom before, as opposed to me just calling her randomly or her calling me. And she's like, "Did I do something wrong? Is everything okay?" Are, are and, and like I freaked her out, you know, by even scheduling the call. And then, and then after a while, I was like, "Yeah, like sort of like I'm an idiot. Like she's fine. Like I, I didn't need to do this." And when she's like, "Look, I have a busy life. I got kids. I got work. And um, uh, I, I trust you, and uh, you keep doing your thing. I'll keep doing mine. If there's something we need to change, we'll talk." I was so, like, oh, 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 all good, you know. Um, so that's where,
2: it can, just exactly what you said, it could backfire. What we're saying is, hey, just trust us, don't worry about it. But we do feel the need to say, hey, we're on things, market's bad, we want to reach out to you, and then you're doing your job, client, you're not paying attention, you're not watching, and the market's going haywire, and we feel the need to make sure you know I'm watching. So we make the call and say, hey, market's really been down, and they're like, wait a second, I didn't know market was down. Yeah, <laughs> they did their job, and now we just blew it up. So, like, it's a fine line to walk. You've got it's a service business, right? You've got to stay in touch with people. You've got to relay that we're working and doing things and paying attention. But again, maybe taking our own advice, we shouldn't overreact either on making
1: those calls. Yeah. Well, I think um, we we how we how we try to induce good behavioral decision making for clients is. You can't hit people over the head with research and, and, and white papers around it. It just doesn't. I wouldn't want to read it. That's not why I would hire a financial advisor to read a bunch of crap. And so instead, <laughs> you you have to live it to an extent, right? So we talk about financial planning, and, and I mentioned ego before, and Aaron and Matt both just hit on it a little bit too. Where you you we try to keep our egos out of it. I, virtually, I think every conversation I try to have, although as professionals, we probably do have some degree of expertise around markets. And we can probably most of the time make some type of reasonably good prediction. You know, at least hey, you know, over the next X amount of months, this is likely, unlikely, whatever. And I specifically tried to never make those types of of, of predictions or conversations. Not only did it to avoid someone telling me how wrong I was in a year or six months, but again, just to kind of walk that talk. And, and when I'm discussing someone, you know, what's going to happen. I always say I have no idea what's going to happen. I really don't. I'm not going to pretend I do, and I'm not going to give you some sort of elaborate discussion around what is going on with the Fed and blah 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 blah. And uh, I'm never going to tout my performance. I'm never going to hide my underperformance. And I'm just going to let it be what it's going to be. And, and that's that's kind of walking our talk to to say like, you know, look, this isn't this isn't how. You're going to succeed. Um, so, I, I, I don't know. I just think that's sometimes the best way, or at least how I try to do it and, 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 and see clients, you know, hey, again, they hired us because we probably have some professional expertise and know more than them about markets. But at the same time, by keeping our egos out of that equation, um, is I ho- I, what I hope to, <laughs> to be a passive way to help clients not make panicked decisions
2: one of the best that does that. And look, I think you're exactly right. We all want to think we know and say, hey, client, it's okay because I know what's going to happen. And the reality is we don't. One of the best is, and Matt, you just forwarded around a video from the other night of Howard Marks, no relation. Yep. The best at it, right? <laughs> Uncle Howard. Uncle Howard. So uh, <laughs> he one of the most successful investors of all time. Yeah. And they ask him on the interview... Do you think the market panics over? He says, I don't know. How can anyone know? I don't know more than the market. The market's the market. And he says a different version of that, you know, four times throughout the interview. Hey, we're not market timers. I don't know. We're we're always investing. Maybe a little more here, a little less there. But uh, you have to be humble and honest with yourself that you don't know what's going to come. And and man, he's one of the best at it. So if you have a chance to read any of his uh, material, listen to him, he's a great one.
0: Yeah, no, he's a legend for a reason. I mean, his, uh, his, his thought leadership alone has been a huge contribution to the industry. And, and to your point, he's been one of the more successful investors of all time. Um, you know, just just to give, uh, you know, maybe one more example on that, but maybe also with, with a little bit of a, a concrete example just from yesterday, because it's front of mind, you know, you were both talking about ego um, and uh, our egos, client egos. And I could see some people listening to this and thinking, That's all fine for people that need handholding. But I'm a big, tough uh, executive. I built my business. I'm a a doctor, department chair, lawyer, head of the firm, whatever it is. And I don't know about you guys, but what I find over time is the people who were wildly successful in their own field are often the most difficult investors. I don't mean difficult clients. For us, we get along well and all that. I just mean that the markets don't lend themselves sometimes to just outworking everybody and, and and beating them into submission in the short term. Over the long term, yes. But in the short term, you can't control that. You, you, you can't control that trade. And I'll uh, uh, I give an example yesterday of another uh, client, this uh, again, awesome guy, totally other end of the spectrum uh, in his seventies male, uh, uh, but in retired, and read an article that we had forwarded around talking about this long-term perspective and, and, and so on. And, he, and this, I think, comes right back to behavioral finance. And this guy happens to be, for all of his success, uh, th- th- this client happens to be uh, fairly humble and, and, and I think very you know, grounded in his ego. But said to me, he's like, you know, that article you sent around was great about the long-term. And I fully agree, but you know, I'm in my mid-70s now. I don't have the same long-term as I did when I was in my 50s. And this was just a, a great behavioral example because I said to him, I said, remember your financial plan. Here's your asset allocation. We have set aside, and, and I, you know, I think in his case, it was about seven years worth of, worth of cash flow needs that have nothing to do with the stock market in his portfolio. It's like five to seven years in his case. And, and I was like, so for the remainder of the portfolio, you do have that horizon. He was talking, the author was talking about five to seven years, I was like, that's you. And that's why we set it up that way and he's and the client took a pause and he's like you're right that is like that helps me think about it that way like and and so it's just an example of how we use planning cash flow to effectively say and you know, we've always said that um if you invest with us there're going to be days weeks months quarters and probably years where you lose money and frankly, if you're, you know, interviewing advisors and they tell you something the opposite of that, I would use that as a signal to walk to walk out the door. <laughs> right. um, but, uh, uh, but our our plan is, you know, when those uh, lousy markets come, you do planning in advance so that you don't have to sell and fail to reach your goals. You can either hang on or, or or buy more. And everything we do is is structured around trying to get our people to hang on or buy more in these types of times. And uh, th- this time is no different.
2: So I was just going to bring that up. So what are they? We, we keep talking about things not to do? Don't do this. Don't do that. So what should you do? It's exactly what Matt just said. And I referenced this on a, a, a webinar we did a, a month or two ago. And a friend client of mine actually mentioned to it, he said, oh, that was a great line. And I don't know where I got it from. But I do remember reading an article when I first started in the business. And it was something like uh, great investing means you're uncomfortable or it's, you know, it's uncomfortable to invest at the right time. So the market's good. It feels good. Hey, let's invest. Let's piggyback on what everyone else is doing. And hey things are going higher. It's easy then. But the whole game is buy low, sell high. So when things are going up and you're piling in, maybe not the right decision. So if the game, again, buy low, that's when things are bad, when it's uncomfortable. And I said the line, get uncomfortable. Get uncomfortable means market's bad. People are panicking. And Matt just said it. Now's the time to add. Now's the time to buy. Things are on sale. We know what the market does over time. So get uncomfortable means when you don't want to invest, that's the time to invest um, because it's going to pay off over time. And I, It could be a day later, it could be 10 years later, but it will pay off as long as you're disciplined and investing in the right things and you don't need the money right away. But those are things to take advantage of. Get uncomfortable. If you have the liquidity and you have the cash flow set aside, take advantage of when things are on sale.
1: Yeah. And I, I think it's a good segue. I was going to add to that. And then we should, should get ready to let people get back to their days here and finish up. But uh, I'll steal a little from Nick Murray, who I think for my money is uh, no pun intended, the best behavioral counseling uh, consultant in the industry for us. Um, and he uses three tenants, which I try to use with clients around what makes you a successful long-term investor And it's, Aaron just mentioned one of them, it's the discipline factor. It's having faith in what you own and your portfolio and also uh, having patience. And I I try, I have asked clients to use a decision tree sometimes in, in, uh, in in bad markets or when they're potentially going to make panic decisions. And it's pretty simple is, are you being disciplined? Ask yourself that, are you being disciplined right now? Are you losing? or Are you keeping your faith? And are you having patience around those three, those other two tenants? And if your answers are no to some of those questions, well, let's have a conversation um, and then and, and figure out why that is. But I'll also just use one more example in, in my own life. For me personally, this is not everyone's goal. But aside from the specific goals people have, retirement, education, specific cash flow needs, my sort of overarching personal financial goal is I want to be calm and still and independent. And I don't want to be full of anxiety and riddled with stress when it comes to my own finances. And it's funny because I have a lot of friends around my age, <clears throat> you know, early thirties, late twenties, making great money and establishing fantastic careers. And it's funny. We play around a round of golf where we, we hang out and I catch up with them and, you know, what's going on with Bitcoin? What's going on with the SPAC market? What's going on with this? And I lost $10,000 doing that. I made $800,000 doing that and, well, I don't think anybody's made internet dollars. Otherwise I'd hope they call me, but, um, it's funny because I feel, you know, I, I personally haven't got dove into those hot trendy investments myself. And, uh, there's a sense of stillness that I feel in those conversations. And I'm like, I don't have the FOMO. I don't care what's going on. I don't have to check my phone and see what's going on there. I can just enjoy this moment, this golf swing, which I'm not very good at, but um, that's my goal. And I, I, again, I'm not saying everybody should have that goal, but for me, I think most people want to have some calmness in their life and they want to reduce stress. So for me, when I can stick to those core tenets, it makes me happy <laughs> and able to sleep at night when others are fretting about some trend. So that's my uh, that's a, a, something I love about just being kind of disciplined around portfolio management. That, that
0: was the perfect uh, uh, Pat Swift synopsis. When I'm, when I'm introducing Pat to clients, I always you know they say, "Look, if you're going on Zoom, he looks like a teenager, he thinks like a wise senior citizen, and he's somewhere in between." that so so, no that that was uh totally agree with what you said i appreciate that so Aaron, you want to take us out
2: yeah you know we're going to stay focused on bringing more content like this we're going to focus on people ideas topics so we we hope that uh, behavioral finance was uh, uh, a topic that you liked hearing about happy to chat more about it um so again Stay disciplined, try to remove emotion, have an advisor, have a plan. That's the message here. And anything you need, we're, uh, we're always happy to talk. So thank you again, everybody.
1: Thank you very much. And I, at some point, I think we'll be on libraries and stuff. So give us some likes and ratings. I think that's what people do on podcasts. So I think that helps us. So And tell a friend, maybe. Uh, yeah, a friend. I don't
0: know. Do we do that?
1: Anyway, yeah. uh, <laughs>
0: thanks again. Thanks.